Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always a pleasure, Steve. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Uh, Now, before we start, I just want to mention a change in the format uh, that kicked in last week. We're no longer conducting this podcast on the social network formerly known as Twitter. Instead, we are recording it in the studio. Now, this is a return to past practice, uh, but with a twist. While we won't be taking questions live, we are inviting listeners to send questions on the topics at hand in advance. And I see that a few questions have come in for today's podcast, so we'll try to address some of those toward the end. Now, there are several things I want to discuss today, all stemming from Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, including the Ukrainian counteroffensive and an interesting interesting issue that you've written about, Mark, uh, how Moscow's aggression against Ukraine in the last decade, including the large-scale invasion that began almost 18 months ago, is related to or follows from Russia's uh, invasion of Georgia in August 2008, 15 years ago. Uh, But first, I'd like to ask um, about the aftermath of the Wagner mutiny, the short-lived rebellion orchestrated by the Kremlin-connected mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose forces entered Russia from Ukraine, where they were fighting, uh, in late June, essentially seized the city of Rostov-on-Don and advanced to within 200 kilometers of Moscow before Prigozhin abruptly called it off. Now, time is passing, and this really jaw-dropping occurrence has more or less disappeared from the headlines, uh, but its reverberations may last a long time. Several generals have been demoted, detained, or disappeared from sight, and in most cases, it's unclear exactly what has happened uh, with them. Mark, you're an expert on Russia's security agencies and the military. I'd like to ask you basically for an update uh, on the aftermath of the mutiny and also your view on this question. Did it leave Russia forever changed, or could it end up having been just a bump in the road? Okay, well, let me start by looking at sector by sector, different elements of the security apparatus before tackling the big picture. I mean, Wagner itself, what's interesting is the most recent news is that actually Wagner fighters have been being bussed out of Belarus, where they were setting up their new base. And it seems to be that it's because of a dispute over precisely who has to pay to keep Wagner there. And I think really what this does I think bring very much to the forefront is that no one really has a pretty good sense of what to do with Wagner. I mean, it's clear that it went beyond the pale. Putin was trying at first to keep it in the fight in Ukraine, but not under Prigozhin, but one of the field commanders. Prigozhin managed to veto that. And Prigozhin was able to do so because essentially the Kremlin still clearly wants to keep Wagner as a factor in Africa. There, it earns a certain amount of money, but more to the point, it gives Russia a degree of political traction in Africa that it wouldn't otherwise have. It 
I hesitate to say trolls the West, but certainly creates constant anxieties for the West and is generally a sort of distracting factor. So Putin wanted Wagner in Africa to continue, even if Wagner in Russia slash Ukraine was no longer acceptable. And you've got the military trying to attract Wagner fighters to join either the regular forces or else one of the new mercenary organizations that, frankly, are much more under the military's thumb. While Prigozhin presumably was still trying to make some money and retain some utility. The fact that Wagner is now potentially being kicked out of Belarus raises questions as to where it's going to be based. We don't know yet. That's, that's the, the key thing to say. But again, I think it, it, it's one of these issues which, despite the fact that the mutiny is no longer on the headlines, it's worth noting because if nothing else, it shows that despite Putin's initial evident anger at Prigozhin, whom you refer to as a traitor, doing a stab in the back, ultimately, I think Prigozhin has managed to convince him that in some ways this was not personal disloyalty against Putin, but instead the kind of hard-nosed horizontal politics which frankly the whole Putinist system relies on so watch this space the military well we still haven't seen General Sorovikin you know arguably the most talented of his cohort of officers clearly suspected of having either connived at or he's just simply known about the mutiny in advance if they are still keeping him under interrogation I mean, what on earth do they want to know other than what his shoe size was when he was age four? I mean, there can't be anything really that they still need from him. There is a part of me that wonders if, if, if bruises or wounds are being waited to heal before he can be rolled out in public. But what is clear is that you know, the military has experienced a distinct blow to the cohesion and loyalty of its, of its upper commanders. We have figures like General Popov, who was sacked because he spoke out about the fact that he wasn't being allowed to basically rotate his troops and, and get the support he wanted. You have General Chiplinsky, who's been in and out of favor, very highly decorated, highly regarded paratroop commander, who frankly is, or at least his supporters, are making it clear that they think he would be a better job of chief of the general staff than Gerasimov, which, to be perfectly honest, is not the highest bar to have to vault. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but nonetheless, sort of, you know, there, there's some uncertainty about whether he's going to go up or down. We'll have to wait and see. One way or the other, it is clear that it's the military who have taken the brunt of the inquisitions after the mutiny. And in part, I do feel that this is actually Gerasimov clearing the decks of his most vehement critics and potential rivals rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. So this is not good for the military. If we move on to the security services, though, the people who arguably have most to blame they clearly haven't suffered in the slightest. Um, Narishkin, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Service, is still presenting his rather bizarre historical geopolitical theories. The Federal Security Service, whose military counterintelligence division absolutely ought to have been the one to nip this in the bud. But nonetheless, there's been no hint of any censure for any of them. And if one looks at the Roscovardia, which again, you know, the National Guard did not cover itself in glory with this mutiny. No more than the armed forces were they, did they seem to be at all willing to actually tangle with, with Wagner as, as they sliced their way towards Moscow. But nonetheless, they have been promised artillery and tanks, which I think is more of a symbolic thing, because I think at the moment, any artillery and tanks that can be pro provided and produced are going to the military, even if they're World War II vintage ones dragged out of schoolyards. But more significantly, 
and here I, I do apologize I'm going to have to deep in, dip deep into security force wonkery <laughs> there was a special forces unit a Spetsgruppa called Grom which was originally part of the Federal Anti-Drug Service when that was rolled into the Interior Ministry at the same time as the National Guard were basically being ripped out of the Interior Ministry's forces it was in part a sort of a consolation prize it left Grom as one of the very few kind of rapid response special forces units at the police's disposal because the rest had gone to the National Guard. Now, that was a, a political land grab, which was operationally disastrous because Sober, who were the pre previous kind of SWAT teams of the, of the police, well, they were now part of the National Guard. And so when police suddenly found themselves in a sticky situation where they needed sort of heavy-duty backup, mm -hmm. whereas once they would just simply call in their sober, now they had to apply to the Roskvardia, get the Roskvardia sign-off, pay Roskvardia for it, and such like. So, so Grom was just this force which was being expanded because it just did provide the military, with, the, the police rather, with some way of not being entirely dependent on Roskvardia. Well, now it looks like they're, they're transferred to Roskvardia. It's a victory for General Zolotov and frankly a defeat for common sense and proper law enforcement. But again, I think it says this thing that basically at the moment the security forces can do no wrong because Putin depends on them. And that really leads me into the kind of the big picture one mm -hmm. of has it forever changed Russia? Well, it has. But as ever, people who think that change has to be something that happens by next Thursday um, are, are going to be disappointed. Look, first of all, Putin visibly and evidently failed to do one of his fundamental jobs, which is to control these horizontal disputes within the elite that are central to Putinism. It's how he keeps power through divide and rule. But the corollary of that is that he's the only person who can manage these so he should have stopped this before it got too disastrous a lot of people were telling him that the whole prigozhin shoigu feud was was destabilizing so anyway he has failed in one of his primary functions and everyone knows that really secondly the very fact that wagner you know a few thousand wagner troops were precisely able to spear within 200 kilometers of moscow where, to be honest, they would have been blocked at the Orca River if mm. they tried further. This was never really about taking Moscow. It was about a, a performative show of power. But the vast majority of the security forces, both military and National Guard, they did not join the mutiny, as Prigozhin had clearly hoped and expected. He had said that he thought that half the army would join him. Well, however much they may despise Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, they weren't going to mutiny. But on the other hand, nor were they going to do anything about the mutiny. In effect, if this was, shall we say, a vote of confidence in Putin and the regime, most of them chose to abstain. And that really does matter because one of the things that we've always sort of assumed up to now is that if all else failed, Putin could count on the security forces as the final backstop of his power. Now that's not quite so certain. Again, we shouldn't assume that that means they're all going to turn against him. But nonetheless, if people are thinking about, at some point, the potential need to, to do something about Putin, they may be feeling a little bit more relaxed about it. And so generally, what happens is now Putin has fewer in the way of resources to deal with whatever the next crisis may be and can't essentially count on the momentum of his political position. And it's worth noting, after all, that 
despite the fact that for so long he had clearly been keeping himself aloof from the Russian people, not wanting to engage with the fact that next year he is up for re-election. Um, but let, let me give you my, my, my sneak preview. I think he's going to win. <laughs> um, but actually now we're having Putin, or at least someone who <laughs> looks like Putin, now pressing the flesh. You know, he was in Derbent, then in St. Petersburg for Navy Day, you know, actually meeting the, the, the crowds in a way that we haven't seen Putin doing for years, really. Um, we're now getting talk about the, that uh, the presidential administration is working on a strategy which is meant to provide Putin with an 80% vote in those elections, which would be higher than he's had in previous ones at the very time when actually his standing is less. You know, these, these to me sound like the moves of someone who is rattled, who realizes that now he is in, I wouldn't want to say quite a political fight for his life, but what he thought was in some ways just naturally going to, to fall into his lap, he now has to work for. So, you know, yes, Putin is weaker and this does change things. Not weak enough that he's going to fall immediately, but he, whatever the next crisis is, he will go into it weaker than he was before Prigozhin's mutiny. Thanks, Mark. That's a very interesting assessment. Um, you know, you, you you called it wonkery, but but I definitely appreciate the the detail on on some of the things that are going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, it's good to know, especially at a time when, as as I mentioned, this is kind of in some ways, you know, the, the aftermath is 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 hard to follow. It's it's kind of disappeared from sight, um, like sort of Eakin. Um and you mentioned Putin's efforts to appear in public to to press the flesh. Um, yeah, very unusual, and and I I, th I think they, they do seem to have begun almost immediately after the the abortive mutiny. Uh, so um, there seems to be, and of course, you know the the election coming up in March. But uh, you know why not have started it earlier if you were going to. You know, if he was going to start campaigning at some point, so I think particularly, I think the 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 sight we saw of the people of Rostov on Don, how they responded to Wagner and indeed to Prigozhin, and when Prigozhin was leaving, you know, it was almost like a sort of superstars me media event. Now, again, it's not, I think, because everyone just thinks Prigozhin is a lovely human being; he certainly is not that. But again, I think it was a sign of the kind of latent disaffection with the status quo, such that they're you know, happy to, to welcome anyone who seemed to be challenging that. I imagine, and how can one really know, but I imagine that would have been quite shocking to Putin and to his political technologists. Uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, you also mentioned 80%, I think, uh, I mean, in a way, it reminds me of the way they've they've used Zhirinovsky and others to you know to to attract the votes to harmlessly attract votes of of I think people who would have cheered Prigozhin leaving Rostov, uh, but but that was done in a much safer, well organized way. Here, presumably, the Kremlin saw saw what was happening and thought, well, okay, that we you know we can't have this. And there's also a mention by. Peskov, Putin's spokesman, and I now I forget whether he said ninety percent or ninety-five, but he told the New York Times it was a mere ninety percent, right? Mere ninety percent, um, and he says he was misinterpreted, though he didn't say he was misquoted. Um, he he basically said Putin will will win or you know can win ninety percent of the of the vote, which which you know, and you mentioned eighty is is higher than than the than the previous results. Ninety is you know. Uh, 
extremely high, um, e even for, for Putin in Russia. So um, that was a, a bit of a strange interlude. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks very much. I mean, and, and the kind of conclusion that he goes into the next crisis, uh, you know, kind of visibly weaker. Um, it's, uh, it's very thought-provoking. Uh, but um, I'd like to ask you, uh, move on to a question about uh, the Russia-Georgia war and, and its kind of effects or, or how it relates to um, Russia's invasion of, well, the aggression against Ukraine and the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine um, almost 18 months ago. Last week marked 15 years since the five-day conflict uh, in which Russian forces drove deep into Georgia before eventually withdrawing, well, withdrawing to the breakaway Abkhazia and South Ossetia regions, um, which became even even more firmly backed by Russia or occupied by Russia um, under an EU-brokered agreement. Now, I remember traveling to Georgia, actually, it was a month after the war. Uh, and there were still Russian encampments uh, in the Black Sea port of Poti, where Georgia's small navy was destroyed. I believe those left soon afterwards uh, under this deal, but um, you know there was there was certainly a presence deep deep in Georgia for quite some time. Now um, I mentioned a few of the books that you've written in the introduction, but I did not mention uh, one that was released in March of this year titled Russia's Five Day War: The Invasion of Georgia, August two thousand eight. Uh, in a recent post, uh, you wrote that. Um, in relation to the book, that the lessons, uh, both real and false, that Moscow drew from the war would lead to Crimea 2014 and the full invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Mark, could you just expand on that a bit, please? Take us through the ties between the two wars. I mean, of course, one tie is the fact that Russia has said repeatedly that it does not want Georgia or Ukraine to join NATO. It's called these red lines. The Russian invasion of Georgia came four months after NATO told those two countries that they would someday be members, although it gave no timetable. And in fact, this statement was actually much less than what they had wanted and what the U.S. administration at the time wanted, which was to bring um, Georgia and Ukraine closer to membership by providing them with membership action plans, if, if uh, my recollection is accurate. Yeah, I mean, look, if we look at the, the, the Georgian operation, I mean, first of all, I think I should just dwell on just for a moment that phrase about red lines. Uh, we should recognize the degree to which this is a political gambit that the Kremlin often uses by trying to essentially make the West deter itself mm -hmm. by saying certain things are all red lines. Usually they will never actually say what the consequences of crossing said red line would be. I mean, it's a little bit King Lear. I shall do such things. What they are, I know not, but they will be the terrors of the earth. Um, and I think what we have seen through the, the course of, of the Ukraine war is certain red lines turn out actually be at best a sprightly pink because they get crossed and Russia huffs and puffs and maybe spends a couple of evenings throwing missiles or drones at Ukrainian cities. And then we're back to the previous situation. Now, th I think there are some things that are red lines and I think probably the prospect of a rapid loss of Crimea or a direct uh, incursion onto Russian soil by Western forces these things fine but 
Anything short of that, we have to be aware of. A lot of the, what the Russians are doing is rhetoric. And this is important because if one thinks about what happened at the Budapest summit, which both Georgia and Ukraine were hoping for these membership action plans, and instead what they got were vague promises that, yes, of course, they will be members of NATO someday, somehow. It was a terrible, terrible compromise that actually satisfied no one and, if anything, alarmed everyone. I mean, what it meant was that actually Moscow interpreted this in not as, as it really was, which was basically an embarrassed attempt to fob off the Ukrainians and the Georgians by a NATO which in, in the main, remember, NATO decisions have to be done by unanimous consent. Um, you know, there was certainly not a consensus to creating a, a genuine roadmap for membership of, of, of the alliance for both of them. So instead, given that uh, NATO wasn't willing to just simply say, sorry, guys, not this time, they came up with a form of words, which Russia interpreted as a definite sign that absolutely NATO wanted to incorporate these members, which definitely left the Russians in their own paranoid mindset alarmed. And frankly, I think it's also that uh, nationalists in Ukraine and Georgia were heartened because they believed that somehow they had been given security guarantees that they really hadn't. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth dwelling on that just simply because it's something we have to be thinking about for the future. As particularly at the moment, not so much with, with Georgia, but as NATO is grappling with how to deal with Ukraine. And we saw this, frankly, in the most recent NATO summit. There is a danger of coming up with some kind of fudge that satisfies the domestic political market inside NATO, but does nothing to secure Ukraine. And if anything, might actually sort of seem to confirm the uh, fantasies of those people in the Kremlin. So that's something to be dwelt on. Mm. Oh, now, the, the key thing about the, the Georgian invasion is, I mean, it was this very rapid five day operation. And although the Russians committed a, a whole range of blunders, Nonetheless, of course they won. I mean, how could they not in terms of the massive disproportion of forces between Georgia and, and uh, Russia's, but also because actually their objectives were, were pretty limited. This was not about occupying the country. This was about delivering a sort of demonstrative blow to Saakashvili's Georgian government, about making a, a sign to other post-Soviet states that, no, no, you just bear in mind, you are within Russia's sphere of influence. And if you try and buck against that, we will punish you. And more to the point about kind of solidifying the existence, the fake sovereignty of the pseudo states of South Ossetia and Abkhazia within Georgia. So small operation, really quite defined objectives largely working in and alongside local proxies. And in those circumstances, yeah, it, it was able to basically deliver a, a fait accompli. Um, the Russian forces not only managed to expel any Georgian elements from Abkhazia and South Ossetia and you know, thoroughly uh, shatter the Georgian armed forces, they sort of got half the way to Tbilisi before basically stopping and I'm slightly caricaturing it, but sort of demonstratively sneering and turning back. You know, they didn't actually try and take Tbilisi, but they, they demonstrated we could if we wanted. And the West, it huffed, it puffed, it wrung its hands. And in due course, it, prevented, it presented a, a peace plan, which essentially did, did nothing, in my opinion, particularly substantive. And from Moscow's point of view, 
I think it demonstrated that actually if if it works fast, if it presents the West with a fait accompli, where actually to, to reverse that would be difficult, expensive and dangerous, then the West will do very little. And you know, this was then reinforced by Crimea, which is again mm-hmm. much the same. And you know, we have to remember in that context that from Putin's point of view, that's what this invasion 18 months ago was going to be right you know and and it's worth wondering if let's say ukrainian armed forces had as let's be honest a lot of defense analysts had imagined been shattered within the first week or two and within two weeks there was a proxy government in in kiev made up of ukrainians even if obviously hand-picked by moscow there had been you know, some military engagements, but the, but the main issues had just simply been riots here and there, which is why Roskvardia forces were included within the invasion contingent. But basically, Russia had kind of won. Yes, of course, there'd be some sort of simmering um, local resistance, but basically won. In other words, if Putin's dream had become a reality, it is worth wondering quite what the West would have done. Would we have been anything like as determined uh, in punishing Russia for that? Would we have felt that, well, we still need to, to, to work with the Russians, it's not necessarily in the Ukrainians' interests to you know, burn bridges, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I honestly don't know, but I, I have my deep suspicions that in fact we, we would have much more quickly accepted this status quo just as you know with some sanctions and things just as essentially we did with crimea and georgia but the irony is that another of the key effects of georgia was actually to undermine russia's capacity to fight this war with ukraine there were major military reforms which were finally pushed through after the georgian war the 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 various blunders you know were cases where you know generals ended up caught in the middle of firefights because they hadn't known where Georgian forces were or having to borrow journalists' satellite phones because their own comm systems didn't work, etc., etc. That provided the then defence minister, Sedukov, the the ammunition, shall we say, to force military reform on a recalcitrant and conservative high command. And the, the essence of this so-called new look reforms was precisely to try and move away from the old Soviet model of a mass army which is really configured for a big war you know, on the plains of Europe or northern China, and instead for a much more, frankly, Western-style force, geared around smaller professional units which are able to you know, intervene in small operations, whether it's in Russia's strategic neighborhood or the kind of things which, which we then saw in Syria and the like. And it was precisely because of these reforms I would suggest that the Russian military was much less geared for a big old-fashioned conventional war in Ukraine because it had moved away from divisions. And it's worth noting that the division as a a basic building block has been coming back for this very reason. It was geared much more towards the so-called battalion tactical groups, these smaller, flexible sort of um, deployment forces. You know, just generally speaking, in some ways, what we're actually seeing is the Russian military having to reverse many of the reforms of the post-Georgian era in order to fight in, in Ukraine. 
So in, in that respect, yes, the Georgian war helped convince Putin that a war like Ukraine, a conflict, a, a sort of a fait accompli, a seizure like Ukraine, as he thought of it, was, was possible. But at the same time, the irony is that also it actually made this, this, the subsequent contest much harder for Russia to fight. Oh, that's that's amazing. I, I um, fascinating. I, I had not heard that um, about. You know, I've always read that uh, Russia's military, you know, kind of improved, and uh, but uh, so that's uh, that's very interesting to know. Um, well, this is the problem about trying to assess military strength. People, you know, it, it's we have a tendency to assume that again, it's the sort of thing which which lends themselves to neat sort of metrics of how many troops and how mm-hmm. many brand new vehicles and whatever. But one also has to ask, look, armies configure themselves and their doctrines for particular types of engagement. You know, this is what the Soviets found when they went into Afghanistan. It wasn't the war that they were trained, prepared, armed and equipped to fight. Well, likewise, what happened actually ended up in Ukraine is that it wasn't what what the the, the new... (coughs) Excuse me. What the new military was, again, geared to fight. Absolutely. Um, and you raised a very interesting question. Uh, uh, kind of thank goodness we, we didn't have to find out uh, but uh, of what the West would have done if if it had been, if Putin's dream about Ukraine had been had become a fait accompli. Um, the other the, the last question I'm going to try to keep short um, also relates to the to the West. Um, uh, the question essentially is, is Ukraine's counteroffensive uh, going too slowly? And does uh, does the pace of that counteroffensive put Western support at risk? I mean, look, I think that is it going too slowly? It, it certainly it is going more slowly than the Ukrainians had hoped and wanted and anticipated. And also the West. The problem is, I mean, to a degree... The, the the benchmark has been set by a lot of overenthusiastic boosters who earlier in the year were talking about how thanks to you know the arrival of western armor and such like it would you know cut through the russians like a knife through butter mm. you know and, and, and johnny russian wouldn't know what hit him and would immediately run away well unfortunately johnny russian had also been thinking about how they were going to fight a defense they built these sort of massive and deep defenses of mines and tank traps and barbed wire and so forth and you know honestly one should never underestimate the capacity of the russians to fight uh, a deep a deep defense so yes you know it's not going as fast but the thing is we tend to fixate on on territorial movements and gains because again they're easily quantifiable the fact of the matter is that the goal of war is to deprive your enemy of the will and capacity to continue to fight rather than anything else and in that respect i mean although yes the the, there's still the chance that the ukrainians will be able to make the sort of the the much fated uh, and and vaunted breakthrough in the south and be able to actually cut off crimea which really would be a game changer but even if they don't we have to acknowledge the degree to which they are indeed degrading russian capabilities you know that they are for example you know, attacking the crucial, not just the supply lines, but actually Russian artillery capabilities. You know, artillery is, is the god of war. And at the moment, the Ukrainians are destroying Russian artillery at a substantially faster rate than the Russians can produce them. And forcing the Russians more and more to depend on older systems. And 
you know, just generally speaking, I mean, I think this is this is the way we have to think of this war. It is something that I don't think it's it, well. Obviously, it's not going to be over this year. I mean, that was always an, an unlikely possibility. If we think about the next counteroffensive, if we think about spring 2024, now, by that point, not only will the Russians have been able to, yes, they, they will have spent the winter restocking, rebuilding their defensive lines and so forth, but they'll be facing a Ukrainian military, which will have not just more Western kit, but more time to integrate the Western kit into their own way of war. The moment the trouble is they're kind of stranded between their old style, which is essentially really still quite Soviet, and the sort that the West thinks they should be adopting. Well, you know, a winter will give them a chance to come up with a Ukrainian way of war that picks the bits that they want, that suits what they have got, because after all, the Western way of war is no use if you haven't got essentially dominance of the air, which is something that we've always, you know, that we tend to assume that the West will have. Um, you know, and, and therefore, I think, be in a much better position. So it's a long-term thing rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it going too slowly? It, it, it's going more slowly than it might. But still, ultimately, in my opinion, the Ukrainians are winning. In that context, I mean, yes, there's concerns about Western support. Honestly, I don't imagine that we are going to see any major change, even if the results of the counteroffensive are disappointing. Unless there's some particular political change in, oh, say, the United States. Um, that is the, the big potential game changer. A Trump presidency might, only might, mean that things are very different. But up to that point, I don't think it's going to change. But the final point, the trouble is that so long as Putin believes or hopes or desperately clings to the idea that Western support for Ukraine will falter, or indeed that ultimately sort of all he has to do is wait for Trump to be in the White House, then that gives him no incentive to negotiate. Sure, things might be different if Crimea is, is threatened. But other than that, if he thinks that all I need to do is hold on for a few more months or even another year, and then victory will be within my grasp, then unfortunately he will probably continue that because he will always think that there is the hope that he will get something good out of this for himself. All right. Well, thanks very much for, for that as well, Mark. And, and, and I, I imagine that, as you say, kind of barring uh, a, a huge threat to Crimea or something like that, Putin will want to uh, to continue um, through through the the election um, next next March. Um, so I guess we'll have a bunch of things coming coming to a head around that time, you know, after the, after the winter. And you, you, you mentioned sort of Ukraine getting, uh, getting more, uh, more ability to, to use the weapons uh, in its own way. Um, all right. Well, we're getting short on time, but let's try to address uh, a couple of the questions that have come in from listeners. Uh, and apologies if I mispronounce any names here. One question comes from Alistair Kadi. Uh, and I think, actually, Mark, you, you answered this in part or, or po possibly to a large degree. Um, he asks, what are the differences in objectives and planning assumptions uh, for the Russians during the 20 2008 invasion of Georgia and the 2022 invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, the, the key thing was precisely that in Georgia, the Russians weren't after regime change. Putin, who at this time was prime minister, but still power behind the throne, clearly despised Mikhail Saakashvili 
a sentiment that, that was fiercely and enthusiastically reciprocated. But nonetheless, essentially, this was punitive, not transformative. They weren't actually trying to take over Georgia to, to reshape its government or anything like that. They just wanted to kind of use it as an opportunity to show their, their force. So that, I think, is, is the key difference in objectives. The only thing I would say about planning assumptions is actually, again, the similarity there. In both cases, the planning assumptions were that these were going to be short-term operations. And that has massive implications for force structuring, but also, above all, how much additional resource is there is available for sustainment. You know, are there additional forces ready to be cycled in? Is there the adequate stocks of not just ammunition, but all the basic stuff like fuel and food? In Georgia, that certainly turned out not to be a problem. This was just a five-day war. So it was well within their planning assumptions, which I think had, had kind of gone out to maybe two weeks in maximum. In Ukraine, where again, this sort of two-week figure seemed to crop up, but I think obviously they, they had thought of it in terms of more than you know, a few months. That was going to prove to be a crucial problem. All right. Um, yeah, interesting uh, about that. Um, and, and again, uh, just the... All goes back to to the incredible kind of um, you know mistake uh, that 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 Russia made that Putin made in in assuming or believing that that this would happen and of course the credit goes uh, you know to Ukraine Ukrainian military um, but uh, you know that 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 it that it did not come to pass. Um, that way, and in a way, but just to, just a little aside, even though there's not much time, it kind of reminded me. It reminds me of the of the of the NATO summit we were talking about, the Bucharest summit in 2008. I mean, it seemed quite clear to I, th- I think to everyone, you know, in the West, uh, who was who was looking at it, thinking about it, that George and Ukraine were were as you, as you said, I think, being sort of fobbed off. You know, told, yeah, you'll be you'll be in eventually, no doubt, but. We're not going to do anything about it now, and 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 for Russia to kind of take that, take this as, as a sort of a genuine uh, uh, sign that that the West really does want uh, want Ukraine and Georgia in. It seems like kind of a, a big, almost a surprising mistake to make. Um, but uh, so thanks again for that. Um, now the second question is a bit longer. Uh, it focuses on Britain, and it's from Jeffrey Colby. Uh, he writes that, quote, a difference between Russia's invasion of Georgia and the invasion of Ukraine is that the invasion of Ukraine was a blatant, unprovoked invasion of a sovereign, democratic European nation by an aggressor state. For the UK, this was a stark reminder, he continues, that we had appeased Hitler in 1938, allowing aggressor Germany to occupy the Sudetenland, part of another sovereign democratic European nation. That appeasement had left a bad taste in the UK's collective consciousness ever since. In consequence, the reaction in the UK to the invasion of Ukraine was an unqualified condemnation across all political and social divides, in a way which was unequaled in any other country. The UK then led the world in condemning Russia and organizing the West's response to the invasion in a way which the UK did not do with the invasion of Georgia. So the question continues, does this mean 
that the UK does does actually play a much larger role than the average Briton might suspect in galvanizing and leading world opinion, and that the Russians are right in singling out the UK as its particular enemy in the West as the leader in Anglo-Saxon thinking. Should the UK play on this influence more than it does? And could the UK have made any difference in the invasion of Georgia? That's the question. Okay. Um, I mean, let me start by, forgive me, Jeffrey, um, challenging a couple of the, the sort of concepts. I mean, firstly, I don't actually think that uh, Ukraine is more European in any meaningful sense than, than, than Georgia was. Um, I just feel we're, we're, we're doing Georgia down there. Secondly, I, I am un, uncomfortable with parallels with Hitler and so forth. Um, it's it, it's very easy, but unfortunately, it equally easily stretches to make or to imply wider parallels. You know, about, for example, Russia's long-term goals. Those people who say, oh, well, if, if Ukraine fell, then Russia's murderous legions would then be spilling into Romania or Poland or wherever. I think there's absolutely no evidence of that. This was specific to Ukraine. This is not part of some um, you know, grand vision of a destiny of, of global conquest or anything like that. And also, as soon as we start talking Hitler, it unlocks all kinds of other rhetoric, um, which I don't think is necessarily useful or accurate, like talking about genocides and so forth. And the final one place where I would cavil, I'm afraid, is the idea that this was unequaled in any other country, the, the, the response, the sort of visceral uh, response. I think one can look at countries like Poland and, and indeed probably, probably the Baltic states too, also to see a very sort of you know widespread resistance to what was going on anyway that 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 quibbling put to one side look i mean i think if we look at the british response um in, in part we, we have to at least acknowledge the johnson factor the degree to which boris johnson assailed at home saw this as a particularly useful moment to basically try and distract attention and present himself as, as a colossus bestriding the globe. So there was an element of that. But yes, it's, it's much, much more than that. Generally speaking, I think Britain not only, you know, did it demonstrate considerable degree of unity. And yes, I agree that actually a sense that this could not be you know, answered to by appeasement. Um, but it, it has shown that the Britain does continue to, and this is a phrase that I encountered so often when I was way back in, in the midst of time when I was at the Foreign Office, um, punch above its weight. I don't know why the Foreign Office insists always on using sporting metaphors. Um, you know, it, it, it is a country that, that both seeks and projects to, you know, it, 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 its influence on, on a global basis out of proportion with its economic, military or other capabilities. And in part, this is a legacy of empire, you know, the Commonwealth and so forth. In part, it's, and I, and I say this actually with, with, with full fondness, a degree of bloody-minded arrogance about assuming that the rest of the world should know what we think. It's the opposite of, I mean, this is something that I found exasperating when I was living in Prague, was I felt the Czechs were and I think things have changed, so full, full marks to them. But, you know, in those days, I felt the Czechs were excessively um, downplaying their potential role in the world. You know, Britain, Britain does not downplay itself. So, yes, I think, you know, put that together, and Britain does have a, a particular standing in the world. 
In terms of Russia's relationship with Ukraine, I mean, this, with the UK, this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, we, we clearly do loom very large in their geopolitical imagination. And in part, this is kind of great game stuff. Um, but it's because actually, as the, the bookends of Europe, shall we say, countries which have long been part of Europe, but not truly in Europe, and I do believe that about Russia, um, you know, we, we, we've long had that, that sense that there is some kind of connection between us. And let's not forget that it was Ivan the Terrible who offered his hand in marriage to Queen Elizabeth I. And in part, this rather bizarre potential coupling that no doubt Elizabeth had no trouble in turning down um, was to give Ivan a potential bolt hole. But it was also you know, a great land power looking to ally with a great naval power which would have created some, some interesting sort of geopolitical influences. So, you know, I, I found this, that, that the Russians are at once very much Anglophiles, whether it's in terms of literature or culture or anything else, and a sense of Britain as a sort of cradle of legality and the like. But at the same time, very, very ready to assume that Britain is the source of all their troubles. You know, the number of times you read today that, you know, whether it's the attack on the Kerch Bridge or, or whatever else, that somehow MI6 are responsible for it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the, you know, the Russians are British securities and intelligence services' greatest boosters in that respect. And attacking the UK is also a way of attacking the Anglo-Saxon world that's a bit safer than attacking the United States. There's also that. So, you know, to put it all together, so actually, yes, Britain does have a significant role. And I think it was interesting that uh, the, the other month, very specific restrictions were placed on British diplomats, those who are still in Moscow. Anyway, their capacity to travel and meet Russians. And that's in part precisely because the ambassador there, Ambassador Bronnett, had sort of been very... Um, you know, concerned with making sure that attempts were made to continue to connect with ordinary Russians. And I think that was precisely dangerous for the Kremlin, from the Kremlin's point of view. So they're doing everything they can to stop British diplomats meeting ordinary Russians. And it says something that, that Britain is specifically under these kind of constraints. They're not so worried about other European or, or other Western countries. All that said, I mean, there's two interesting questions, one of which is actually way too big, really, to address in, in this podcast and in some ways isn't really relevant, which is actually whether or not Britain should be trying to maintain that kind of global role. You know, do we really need aircraft carriers that can be deployed in the Pacific or should we be actually a little bit more realistic? That's as I said, I can see arguments both ways. I would happily talk about that, but I don't think it's really what you or your audience are looking for. But in terms of Georgia, you know, could Britain have made any difference in the invasion of Georgia? The answer is no. I don't think anyone could. There was no um, capacity, let alone will, to, for example, put boots on the ground and actually confront the Russian forces there. Um, the, the very speed of the operation and the very confused nature and the fact that the Russians were clever in essentially encouraging their South Ossetian proxies to needle the Georgians and attack them so that actually it was Mikhail Saakashvili who, shall we say, threw the first punch, allowing the Russians to claim that they were simply stepping in to protect their own peacekeepers and such like. Well, again, you know, maybe it only gives you 24 hours worth of diplomatic confusion. But nonetheless, in the, in the context of such a short war, um, then, you know, 24 hours matters. 
where Britain could and in hindsight should have made a, a difference, and this also applies to all the other Western countries, is precisely in the ways that Russia was punished after the event. There was nothing that really could have been done with the invasion. But if afterwards we had been serious, and I mean, in some ways, frankly, I mean, never mind Britain's role, we have to recognize that it was the United States who almost immediately thereafter offered the so-called reset to Medvedev's Russia, which very much was interpreted in Moscow as a sign that when it came down to it, the West didn't care. The West would huff and puff and say the right things because essentially they're hypocrites who have to performatively do this. But when it comes down to it, they don't have a problem with, with Russia operating the way it was within its own quote unquote sphere of influence. So I think that, I mean, you know, Britain alone could not have made a big deal. As it was, British relations with with Russia have tended to be that much more fractious, especially given the Litvinenko and then later on Skripal poisonings. Um, and I know I'm rambling here, so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this <laughs> up. But I mean, I think in terms of as, as part of a wider Western coalition, who knows what would have happened if we had been a lot more bullish in subsequently, if we couldn't defend Georgia, but at least avenge Georgia for the for the war how it might have changed Putin's risk calculus going forward. Well, thanks very much for that for that answer and, and the very interesting question questions that you raise, uh, you know, about what what would be happening now if the response had been um, you know, much more forceful. Uh, and I we are running out of time really. Um, I think up upon near the hour. Um, so I will wrap it up here. Uh, and I have to thank you uh, very much for joining me, Mark. Very informative, as always. A pleasure. All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, as well as a recent book about the Georgia War that we mentioned. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.